Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hello, Asher. Hey, John. Bienvenue aux Etats-Unis. Welcome back. Merci, merci. Yes, I was in Paris. But bef- before I was in Paris, I was in München. Munich. Well, and you speak you speak fluent German also, right? Not quite fluent, but it came back to me in the four days I was there to talk to my family. They live in a town called Kempton, which is the oldest town in Germany, or at least they fight with another German town to be the oldest German town in, in Germany. It's in the Algoi region, which is funny, it's Algoi, way down south. And it's it's actually the home of an American football team called the Algoi Comets. I'll go Wait, so John, we have to peel this back a little bit. You are our, I know your father was a Holocaust survivor. I don't want to get too personal and we can shut this down for a second if you want. <laughs> no, it's all good. My, I want to know uh, what you're doing in the middle of Germany. That's not like the Berlin Holocaust Museum. You know, that this is like real Germany. This is like Lederhosen wearing Germany. Exactly. No, uh, get there. Uh, my dad was a survivor and then liberated by the Americans and then came to the States, went to work for Spiegel, the catalog company, because he was originally from Vienna. Met my mom in Frankfurt, blonde haired, blue eyed German woman named Heidi, eventually converted to Judaism. Although we found out later that her great, great grandmother was Jewish anyway, so probably didn't need to convert. That's a whole story. Anyway, bottom line is we had a whole set of family that made their way after they were kicked out of the Sudetenland by the Russians after the war was over, which I heard some fascinating stories. So they were kicked out, you know, as you probably recall from your World War II history, the Sudetenland had ethnic Germans living there. And then after the war, when Germany lost, the Russians pushed all the ethnic Germans back home into Germany. And my relatives, basically, most of them wound up in this town called Kempton, which is famous for a couple of reasons. One, being the oldest town in Germany. Two, being very close to Neuschwanstein Castle, the famous Disney World castle that you see on all the postcards. And we've got some great pictures being right there. A guy named King Ludwig II, the last king of Bavaria. He was buddies with Wagner, but leaving that aside, he, he made some good castles. <laughs> wow, wow, that's incredible. So yeah, Sudetenland was in Czechoslovakia. And so right. So that, that's right. right. That's um, right. So they spoke with a different dialect. They were treated as second class citizens when they came home. And so my whole family's there. And they're the most wonderful, warm, caring, lovely people you'll ever meet. One of whom actually, every time I go there, we peel another layer of the onion, is actually an evangelical. So he loves the Jews. His church loves Israel. He was just there last year. And he totally shocked me by taking, first of all, he took out this monstrous shofar to show me, which I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And and there was a holder that his wife made for it that was alternating Edelweiss and Jewish stars. Oh my gosh. Edelweiss is that flower, Australian flower? It's the flower that, unfortunately, the Song of Music made that song about it, which is not even a real Austrian song. It's not like it's schmaltz to them, but they eventually- Christopher Palmer, God bless him, a blessed memory. You know, we love him. 
Yeah. So so then he takes out this large shofar and does the greatest tequila gadola, you know, the long song sound you made on the shofar that I've ever heard any Jew, any Rosh Hashanah, any Yom Kippur ever make. And in fact, I, I videotaped it. I'll send it to you later. But what's so shocking to me is, you know, you go to visit his church and you see all these signs about Israel and all the all these things about how much they love the Jews. And, and then we take a tour of the town and we see, I don't know if you've ever heard of these Stolpersteins. Yes, the little the stones, but they're, they're metal, they're copper sort of stones in the ground, right? Th that's right. They're these, the, the literal translation is stumbling stones. And so what Germany has done over the last few years is any place at which a Jew lost their home, they put this plaque, this metallic plaque into the, into the ground, into the road. And you can see, and the, the names are on it. And it was fascinating to, to see and hear the, the Jewish history of this little town, Kempton, of 60,000 people in southern Bavaria. I mean, so much so that they, they even had, and I didn't realize this until this trip. I mean, I've probably been there 10 times. They have these Arbeitslager, basically concentration camps that were subcamps of Dachau. And there were a couple of them in this town that have plaques on them. And, and the Kempton History Museum shows the Jews working in the camps. And I didn't realize there were you know, so many Jews there at the time. So it was, it was absolutely fascinating. And then we go to the, the Bodensee, which is Lake Constance. It's this beautiful lake on the border of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And it, it reminded me of, of the story of Rabbi Samson Hirsch, Samson Raphael Hirsch. Yes. Tell us a little bit about him, and then I'll tell you the story that I like. Well, he followed a philosophy of Torah in Derech Eretz, very strict adherence to Torah and to Bible and to Jewish law, very strict. In fact, he was a separatist. He separated his community from the non-Orthodox communities. But at the same time, within that very fierce loyalty, fealty to tradition, was an appreciation for Eretz, for the land and for the world and for culture. So you still have his Hershian type of Jews that, you know, will be the most ultra-Orthodox Jews, but they'll play the piano and they'll love literature and even opera and natural things in the world, appreciating the whole world. So, right. So what was his quote? Which is the, the great segue, the story I, I, I've always remember reading about it here. It fit perfectly that, you know, he, he went to his students and said, we're going to schedule a trip to, to Switzerland. And they asked him why, you know, you're an old guy. Why are you making this journey? And, and he and said, you're wasting time away from Torah. From yeah, you're not learning. You're not learning Torah. And, the, and this guy lived in the in the 19th century. And he said, soon I'll stand before the almighty. I will be held answerable to many questions. But what will I say when I'm asked, Shimshon, my son, is it true you did many mitzvot, many good deeds? But did you also remember to see my Alps? Mm, so the Geringers saw God's Alps. I can check that off the list yet again. And, and in fact, there is, as I understand, there's a bracha, there's a blessing you say when you see, you know, huge right. mountains like the Alps. It's bracha Hashem, Elkeinim Sabreshit, right? Right, which means that God made the creation. You really appreciate creation when you see those things that really shock you, that really impress, impress you. 
Yeah. But, but it's so funny when you when you dig into it, it's such a Jewish thing. You dig into the literature around that blessing, how you're not supposed to say it if you're on a plane because you can't really tell how big the mountains are from being above them. And there's all sorts of typical rules about when you cannot cannot say that. Well, you know, Rav Soloveitchik used to say that was halachic man or halachic person. He said halachic man is when even acts of nature are all contextualized within halacha, within Jewish law. So, you know, sunset is not just about a beautiful sunset. Wow. It's about now do I have to pray? Can I pray the afternoon service, mincha? Or when can I pray the evening service? Or it did Shabbat start because it's sunset or almost sunset. So everything, even the beautiful hours get to contextualize in the mind of the halacha of a uh, legal Jewish thinker, legal thinker in general, you know, what is the ramifications, the legal nafkamina, we'd say in Aramaic, what is the difference? So here we go, and seeing it person live on the plane or this and that, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and always, you know, in the end of the day, it's bringing God into the experience. That's what a, a blessing is, you know, God, appreciating it with God. I do have a rejoinder to that story, to the, the Hearst story, because, you know, you know, God can say, you know, did you have that, you know, Asher, did you eat that chocolate bar I sent you? Or that, <laughs> that ice cream in the freezer, why didn't you eat it? Who sent the ice cream? No. Well, we're, we're not meant to be aesthetics, right? We are meant to right. be of the world and eat the chocolate. It's, it's exactly Exactly. You gotta, you know, all in relative moderation. But so I, I want to, it's just such a fascinating world where you're here, you're in Germany in a town that had labor camps, but memorializes them. And those little plaques, we saw them in Prague also on the ground where Jews were kicked out. I mean, the most painful experiences mixed with, you know, your your relative who is uh, loves Jews and blew the shofar. So, you know, how, how do you deal with that complicated world that we live in? You know, I grew up with it. And so, you know, having had Holocaust survivor dad, German family on the other side, some of whom, you know, served on the wrong team in the war. Luckily, no one did anything bad. But, you know, nonetheless, they served on the wrong side of the war and, and seeing and this time as well, we saw pictures of some of my older relatives in some of their uniforms, <laughs> let's just say, from WW2. I, and I I'm so used to it by now, but, you know, this is the first time I brought the kids to see it. And so they <laughs> are assimilating that, I think, as we speak. I, I, you know, I've talked to so much about it to them that they, I think they are in on the joke and they get it that life is complicated and our family's history is particularly complicated, but you can embrace it. And, you know, seeing, you know, us going into churches, we talked about this in a previous episode and, and, you know, not figuratively, but literally be filled with awe. I, I think, you know, some halakhic authorities would say something different, but I was filled with awe at some of these churches, not so much of because of the religious quality, but just of the craftsmanship yeah. of of how, you know, the, the, some of these churches were from the 15th century and to see the intricacy by which they built these buildings. And it, it just, in a sense, it actually made me sad to come back to the States and see strip malls that are in boxes. You know, it was almost grotesque coming back to see this 
boring architecture mm-hmm. after having seen, you know, I'll talk about in a second, went to the Louvre in, in oh, Paris. Gosh. We've seen all these things and then it's so, if I could say, banal. John, John, you were the great patriot. You were the great American exceptionalist. And now suddenly you've been- I, I still am, but I, I think we can up our game and actually make our strip malls look a little prettier and maybe decorate it with some gargoyles or something to make it not so damn boring. Wow. Well, it's I, 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 I'm actually- Currently, I'm in Brookline, Massachusetts, and they've done a, just a beautiful job of this town that I remember when I was growing up here 40 years or 50 years ago, almost really come a long way. So there is, yes, we could learn from everyone. And and really, yeah, I, I think uh, w- when we question the value, you know, Europe, ah, Europe's done and whatever, Western Europe, but it, there's still a lot there. There's still a lot that we can learn from. They have a lot of vacation time. They seem to eat well. They're all in shape. My relatives in my 80s are doing Zumba. And when I asked about their taxes, you know, because I wanted to impress upon Jake, you know, how much taxes are going on here. He said, oh, about 50%. I'm like, wait a minute. That's kind of what we have in the upper bracket here. And so I don't know, maybe we should take a look and see what Europe's doing and how we can maybe, maybe. Maybe make our game better here. You know, it's interesting that Germany took in under Merkel, Angela Merkel, a million refugees. And and I don't know how many they have, 60 million, 90 million? I don't know, but much, four times, three or four times less than the United States has. And a million refugees. And I know there have been issues assimilating them or taking them in, but Germany is impressive, you know, learning from, you know, the whole idea. We've talked, I think, a little bit before about tshuva, about repentance and about truth and reconciliation, how important it is. And it feels like a lot of that has happened in Germany, though. Were you there during that crazy coup attempt? People trying to overturn? No, we we, we were there right after that. And it, it is part of the ecosystem there that when you bring in that heavy amount of immigrants relative to your population, you're going to get a backlash. And in fact, they were telling me the backlash was because of not just immigrants, but unfortunately, some of our QAnon has infected Germany as well. So you've got these, you know, streams of anti-immigration and right wing, you know, far right wing Nazi types who, who think every election since, you know, World War One was problematic. And then, and then couple that with the QAnon cult ish stuff, and they've got their problems as well. Yeah, it's again. I think we talked about this. Sometimes you think of in America, you have to step back and you say, "Are we in living in Weimar Germany in the 1920s?" And then you think of that those people that are that were all caught that were trying to stage that coup and bring back the monarchy to Germany, and and yet. They seem like very silly people, but that was the beer hall putsch, right? That when Hitler looked very silly and, and you know, a couple of years later. Right, right. You know, the, the first coup attempt is always the practice one, right? Like they say. But don't forget, even, even Weimar, I mean, they allowed women to vote a year before we did in the United States. Yeah, well, well, 
I think that I think there's still a lot of good things in America. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So so then then we shift to the next phase of the trip. We take the the TGV, the bullet train from to Paris. And I got to say, the French were incredibly nice. And, and maybe it's because, you know, I had to shift from my German to my French and I used as much French as I can. In fact, one of the bartenders said uh, something to the effect, you're you're the only Anglo who's actually tried to use French. And he was so uh, nice to us. You know, ladies and gentlemen, this is like a new John Garinger. This is, <laughs> you know, someone has kidnapped John Garinger in the <laughs> podcast. So. I've been assimilated, right? Yeah. And then and then one of the cab drivers, when he f- found out he was from Chicago, played the entire soundtrack of the Blues Brothers for us. Oh, wow. <laughs> a long taxi ride. Where was that ride from? Well, it was we we're stuck in traffic a little bit. I think he he cut out a couple songs, but that was from the Louvre to getting some famous hot chocolate that they have there. What I did see was interesting. I wonder your take on this. Uh, obviously, there's a very thriving Jewish life in Paris. Mm-hmm. We we're walking past a kosher restaurant on Shabbos, and I was surprised to see it open. Now, how did they get away with it, and why can't we? Well, look, Milt's was open. Milt's in Chicago, great restaurant, was frequently, we used to have Friday night dinners there. You just have to reserve in advance. And Washington, D.C. used to have a restaurant. It was under a rabbi who's not at his synagogue anymore, but it was open on Friday nights. You just had to had to reserve in advance. And frankly, you go in Israel, you go to hotels, you know, they're serving food and you're you're not allowed to have any of the wait staff cook any food, but they're allowed to serve it. And even it's a little bit similar to in Lakeview, we had Windy City Treats, Windy City Sweets. Uh, that was a that candy store that had ice cream, and right. you could have a Shabbat account. So you'd go in and you'd say, "Give me two scoops and put it on my account." So it is doable. It is possible. I think it takes a little bit of work and hustling. But that's great. Yeah, I think that's it, it was. And again, I it, they still might be doing it in Milts and Lakeview to have just make reservations ahead of time and have a lovely Friday night dinner. Um, so, yeah, I think we need more of that. We, we yeah. did go to a fantastic kosher restaurant called Basar, which is not an original name because it means meat <laughs> in Hebrew. It had some delicious steaks and a wonderful pavlova dessert. But the 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 thing that struck me was the music that was playing. We heard the Madonna song "Papa Don't Preach" at least twice. <laughs> well, I'm along glad. with along with some Kanye, and so- <laughs> oh, I'm glad there are some good American exports like QAnon <laughs> and Madonna and Yay. And we're still exporting the best of America to Europe. So yeah, I think that was those was the restaurant where where was it? Was it near? Was it a good location? I mean, was it? Do you have to go far away for it? It wasn't too far from our hotel. Our, our hotel was near the Arc de Triomphe, but, but we also went to, which, by the way, we were there for New Year's Eve. We're at a restaurant nearby. By the way, I wouldn't recommend doing that ever again because we were separated in half. Kate, Katie, my daughter, was with me. We were confronted with 30 armed-to-the-teeth riot cops. Wow. who kept us from moving. I kept trying to say my broken French, but I have dinner reservations. Luckily, they eventually let us break through the plastic shields and the pepper spray and all of that to get to our 
restaurant where we're able to actually celebrate New Year's Eve at the Arc de Triomphe wow. with all the fireworks and a million of our closest friends. I, I felt a little like Marie Antoinette. We were at the restaurant while a million people were right outside of us. But but then we went to, and I don't know, if, have you ever visited Le Marais in Paris? Yeah, and it's really fancy now. I hear they really redid it. I haven't been there for maybe 15 years or 20 years. But wait, but I got to go back to the, uh, even the gendarmes, right? The uh, the soldiers, the, the policemen were, seemed to be very polite in Paris also. I guess everyone was... I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, I literally had a, a plastic shield kind of resting on my chest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, when you see guys with long guns and pepper spray lining up and all you are is a civilian, you know, who wants to go 30 feet to the restaurant. I, no one is going to stop John Garinger from getting to the restaurant. So That's and right. getting to his fan, reuniting with his family, of course. Um, it, it felt a little bit like the movie Taken. You know, I, I have very special skills. <laughs> now, did you, I hope you avoided, I was on a big campaign to ban foie gras from Chicago. So we, did you have some foie gras? And I would forgive you, of course, you're in Paris. Of course, you have to have not only Not only did I not have foie gras, but <laughs> I made it a point of telling my kids who didn't know what it was, that you had a mission a campaign back at Anshay Shalom to make it usher, to make it prohibited. Yeah, because it's so cruel to the geese. And I did have a quote on TV like, you know, we're worried about people dying in Darfur and we're also worried about the geese. But the point that I made is that we can <laughs> do both. You can be concerned about human beings and you can be concerned about cruelty to, to geese. But apparently because they, they... Because they, they, they force feed geese to make their liver fat, right? Yeah, and you know, it was used a lot of Jews as a substitute for butter because it's meat. You can't have meat and milk together. So you can't have butter on meat. So they would use this kind of fat across. So, you know, I think there were things we used to do to animals in the old days that we know not to do anymore. And so you learn to be more kind. But, you know, they, uh, the, the city council in Chicago, it did ban it temporarily but then they uh, they they went back so you can still get foie gras in chicago you know much to my chagrin but you have know, you ever I, tried I, it? I don't think i have i think i might have like 30 years ago when i was first in paris and i have to ask you you went to the louvre i mean i also went to the louvre in abu dhabi which is lovely but did you see the mona lisa we did. We walked right past her. There was a monstrous crowd. You you couldn't get anywhere near her, but I had a pretty clear line of sight. I was maybe 20 feet away from her. We saw Venus de Milo. We oh. saw all sorts of just gorgeous stuff. So there's one in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, yeah, they have its uh, branch and there's some some beautiful art is there. Not as much, but there aren't the huge lines and in Abu Dhabi Excuse me, it's right near the, the, excuse me, by the way, I've tested negative, so no one worry. It's near the Abrahamic house, which is, God willing, inshallah, in 2023 will be finished. It's going to be at this mosque, church, and synagogue all on the same campus. Right. It's right near the Louvre there. So it's worth 
So even now it's almost done. It's worth seeing it from the outside. But yeah, the Louvre is there, but there's nothing like the Louvre in Paris and incredible, incredible. And But the crowds were, you know, just for our listeners, you know, or might want to go there. Crowds weren't too crazy. So they was crowded, but not too bad. It was. We got a little bit of a private tour. So we <laughs> talk about Marie Antoinette. We got to go through some of the lines. What, what struck me, and this is kind of embarrassing to say, you know, having been to the Vegas version of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> How it, big it, the real one was. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, everything there is so much larger than I ever expected, whether it be the Arc de Triomphe, the yeah, Eiffel Tower, yeah. the Louvre. Everything was just on, a, on this epic scale that was so impressive. You know, the, the one of the things that's interesting I think about the Eiffel Tower is when it was first built, it was many people thought it was an eyesore and it's terrible and look how terrible it looks. And you know, there's a lesson there that, you know, things over time, sometimes things still look ugly, some 70s architecture sometimes, but other things, you know, over time, people get used to it and, and become people warm up to that. And I think that's sort of a lesson in life that sometimes you have to be patient and you just have to let things percolate a little bit. I was reading, Pat, I think it was Patty Reagan has an article somewhere, it was in the New York Times, I think, how even this whole Harry and Prince Harry and his tell-all book, Spare and all that, that sometimes you have to wait a little while. Her advice was, when you want to say something, maybe wait a little while before you say it, maybe like a few decades. So sometimes, you know, things just need a little bit of patience and things go in the right direction. Right. Their, their family reunions are going to be kind of awkward, I would imagine, for the next few decades. But all, all I could think about is, is the famous guy from Chicago, Daniel Burnham, Right. He said, make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably will not themselves be realized. All I could think of is make no little plans when I saw each one of these monstrous, gorgeous, iconic things yeah. to do with pairs. You know, what a great city. And I'm glad the French were nice to you. I think, you know, there were, we're, you know, we're working things out with the French still. That's a, I think it's a work in progress. We had the freedom fries and everything. And yeah, we, we did see Le Marais, which in French is the Marsh. It's this un unbelievably interesting historical district. I, I think the Yiddish is the, the, the Pletzel, the little square is the Jewish quarter there where they have supposedly the best falafel place in Europe. Wow. Wow. Lost of falafel, the ace of falafel. And of course, there's another place nearby called like the king of falafel, <laughs> but this is the ace of falafel. And it's, it has a line, I kid you not, stretching down both sides of the street. Because, and it's a kosher place, uh, like, like many of, of the restaurants there in that little district. We, we saw a few kosher places. We saw some Jewish bookstores. It's just a, it's just a fascinating part of town with, with older buildings. And there was even some Holocaust memorials there at some school where they had unfortunately taken away a lot of children. So it, it, again, I'll, almost every step I took, there was something Jewish on this trip, which now, made it even more interesting than I thought it was already going to be. John, did you see people wearing kippot? You know, cause I've heard that people are afraid to wear their kippot publicly. The, the only folks I saw wearing kippot were in that district and in the kosher restaurant. 
but but not so much out on the streets. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was there a long time ago. Again, probably 20, 25 years ago. And I, I did, I wore my kippah then, but I don't know how, you know, it's not recommended. Even then, they talked about putting a cap on. And, you know, I it's, it's it, part of the French ethos is not wearing, you know, not having outward symbols of your religion. But on the other hand, I, for me, it's so important when I go to meetings with in, in mosques or in churches or with imams, I, I, I just find it so important to be able to be open to be a Jew. So I went to a press conference. It was with a, a Muslim rights group, actually, like a civil liberties group. And it involved a, there was a, there was a press conference to say that we are in solidarity with the Jewish community, which suffered an anti-Semitic attack. But we think the person who did that attack is mentally ill and should not be in jail, but should be in a <laughs> mental facility. But having said that, I went there because the first half, because they talked about solidarity with the Jewish community and we are with you and we condemn that action. And I wore my Hanukkah sweater because it was Hanukkah and I had my little sweater with the lights that light up. And because I just wanted to be Jew, I wanted to be an open Jew. There's something powerful about being able to be who you are. But I, you know, I understand that in general, in France, you know, you want to be a Frenchman, not any other religion. So, well, there, there, there was a man who wore a kippah on a recent French news program, and they were kind of badgering him about it yeah. that he was kippah. I mean, yeah. do you get the sense when you walk around? Because I, I don't typically wear it when I walk around, but obviously, people in my circle know I'm Jewish, and 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 like for example, in in law school when there weren't as many Jews as there were like an undergrad. I was the go-to guy. I would find myself sitting at a table and people just peppering me with Jewy questions over right. lunch. I assume you get that people obviously don't know if they don't know you, that you're a rabbi, but seeing you wearing a kippah, do you find that that is a magnet for people who want to talk to you about you're Jewish? I'm a lot Jewish. Of, yeah, you're a Jewish. Lot of, I got questions. Exactly. A lot of Shalom. A lot of people say Shalom and, and in Israel, also, if you can walk around Arab neighborhoods, and it's, I think it's important. Now, it, you know, wearing a kippah is a responsibility. And I know sometimes, I don't know, in the supermarket, you know, I have to be careful not to be pushy and not, sometimes you just do things naturally and you don't realize it. So you don't realize that you're being rude. But so it, it is a responsibility. But I think that's a good thing. Well, I, I found myself, I don't know if you've been watching the new Netflix show on Madoff. I, I, I found myself cringing every time some the word Jew was mentioned, you know, because he was Jewish. He stole money from Jewish charities. And, and every time, like they said the word Jew, I just I kind of hung my head in shame. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I got it. Yeah, I was, you know, he stole money from Ellie Wiesel's foundation. Like, how much how low can you go? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was bad enough that he couldn't get a haircut, right, when he had the money, much less so when the money was stolen from him. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I think, but look, it's, I, you know, there again, the, the contradiction of the world that you have this France, it's so beautiful, and still it has real issues with anti-Semitism. And, right. you know, I think that I, I was, 
not too many years ago, I think it's less than 10 years, we went to we went to London, yeah, around eight years ago. And there our kids wore kippot and we wore kippot. And, you know, usually I get a much more positive reaction than a than a negative reaction. But the one place that I felt totally comfortable was Dubai in the UAE and Abu Dhabi to wear a kippah. Felt very, very safe there. And everyone... Everyone was very friendly. There was no issue. So, you know, I, I like in general the visit place where I can wear a kippah, but I think, my gosh, what can you say about that? Your trip to Europe, incredible. Probably yeah. in Germany, a kippah would have been fine, no? Yeah, I think that it would have been so strange to see. I think they they wouldn't have known what to do with it. You know, that that sort of thing. But, but you're right, like living in this world of contradictions, you know, we, we were on this amazing high of the New Year's and I was thinking, boy, how does it get any better? We're starting 2023 at, uh, you know, at the end of the Champs-Élysées, right at the Arc de Triomphe with a million people, everyone's happy, clinking, hugging, dancing, drinking. And then the next day I found out that a, a very good, practically, you know, family member died unexpectedly at a relatively young age. And she was a big fan of the podcast mm -hmm. as well. And, and all I could think about is, is this is just the nature of life that you go from these monstrous highs and within 12 hours, you know, after I just thought about 2023 is going to start with a bang. And then I get the call, unfortunately, that, our, our very dear friend died. And, and I, how do you as a rabbi deal with those highs and lows that, you know, it's one thing for any individual to deal with them. And, and I use Judaism and the ancient Stoics to go hand in hand because the Stoics believed in something called Amor Fati, which is love the fates, you know, no matter what comes your way. And, and obviously Judaism has elements of that, but, but you as a rabbi, that is a, a huge part of your job, the pastoral stuff, is to see the monstrous highs and, and the terrible lows sometimes in one day. And and what's your approach to processing that? Yeah, well, it, it goes back to something that you had said earlier on when you saw the incredible mountains and you said a blessing of Osema Sebrishit, God creates, who created creation. And the idea is to be there with people and make sure that God is there also. I don't preach it to people when something bad happens, but I want to make sure, and me as a human being, me as a rabbi, that I am there with them. I mean, I still think of, there was a horrific hit and run, which and a, I think a four-year-old was, was run over. She was, this was many years ago in Detroit, an incredible family. And... I can't believe I, you know, when I heard it, it was a Saturday, happened on a Saturday. And I went over to them as soon as I heard on Saturday night and sat with them. And you're not there to comfort, excuse me, anybody. You're just, as the verse says in Psalms, Imo God says, I will be with you, or with him, her, when times are tough. So just to be with someone and to be with them and let them know they're not alone. And, and this family, thank God they had friends, they had family, they had a community and they're an incredible family, resilient. But the most important thing I think is just being there and, and, and 
like verifying, you know, legitimizing anger and legitimizing frustration and just let it all, it's all legitimate there. But so I, that's sort of the best, certainly a rabbi can do is to, and any pastoral figures really just, just to be there. And, you know, it, it's funny on New Year's Eve, I wasn't in Paris in front of the Arc de Triomphe. <laughs> it's but, not like I do that every year. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But we were in Columbus and at a bar mitzvah of a good friend. And the older brother had undergone a lot of chemo, had so had leukemia or, or a childhood cancer, and thank God had recovered beautifully. Um, thank God. And so, and, and 20 years ago, or 22 years ago, I remember celebrating with this same friend, the millennium. And the next day, Rachel's mother died. So there are a lot of ups and downs. But, you know, I, I think overall in life, we have to seize the happy times. We have to seize the good memories if to see the good things that people have done that we've done and and there is a lot of black in this world but we got to seize the good things so hopefully we'll take it now you did some traveling too since our last podcast right you went south of the border yes yes i went to el paso with trua which is rabbis for human rights or social justice and with highest which is the hebrew immigrant aid society a venerable organization for immigrants. And saw all the suffering, saw the families walking on the Rio Grande to get across, saw people in detention centers as their, not jail, but detention centers as their visas were, or whatever, as their status, their asylum status was being examined and shelters for unaccompanied minors that were being really beautifully cared for. And these, I wrote... uh, I wrote an article, we'll see if it gets published, about hearing these kids, some of these teens that could barely read English, say the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States and to Texas. And I'm, look, I spoke out about immigration reform 20 years ago at Anshay Shalom from the pulpit. And I worked on that. What's that? I remember, sure. And, and I said, I also said, like, you know, Come up with a solution. If you are against immigrants and you want to kick out all undocumented, you know, 10 million people, okay, be honest, but come up with some solution. And so I'm a big advocate of immigration and taking more in. And if Germany can take in a million, then we can take in 4 million. And I'm going to get on this soap. I think I've probably done this already, but you know, do it again. You know, unemployment is 3.5%. If it were, 10%, 10%, I'd understand, you know, we're worried. 3.5%, it's historical low. It's a 50-year low. We can afford to take in some more people. Every Starbucks, they're all closed. There's no one to work. There's no workers. Bring them in. What's the matter with everybody? Okay. <laughs> Very good. Wow. I, I got the chills, I think. Now, were, did you visit any shows out there that, that were helping immigrants? Or did you get the sense um, of the Jewish communities on the board and what they're doing? The Jewish community, I think, was in was involved more. I have to say, Christian organizations were. I was with a group of rabbis, so we're all advocating for it. And and there were some Jewish volunteers who were in one of the homes for asylum seekers in El Paso, but a lot of it was really church run. These these homes, and which is 
incredible work. And yeah, the Jewish community, look, I know we do a lot. And even locally in Michigan, in Washtenaw County, and, and our organization, JCRC, AJC is involved. We got to redouble our efforts because we're all recent, not all of us, but almost all of us are pretty much recent immigrants within the last 100 years or 150 years. I think the Jew, the Jewish community does need to do more and and just viscerally understand that we were so desperate to come in that America had it let in more Jews you know, millions would have been saved, you know, we got to do it. So mostly the church and there was synagogue that we saw, but it was mostly really the, the churches that were working on this. Got it. Boy, we covered a lot of turf today. But we didn't mention our good friend, Ari Weinberger, who gave us a shout out. What did he give us a shout out on which? Oh, I think. Audible. Right, right, right. So thank you, Ari. You know, we talked about shul politics. I remember there was a, a meeting. I don't know if you were there, John. I think it was me. I don't know about my contract. And I remember Ari Weinberger showed up to defend <laughs> Rabbi Lopatin to make sure it happened. I, I, I remember Rosie Mock gave me a report about what the vote was. So it was, but thank you, Ari Weinberger, for supporting our podcast. And, and feel free, right, John? People should feel free to sign up, to go on our website, to... We're going to send out a, a, a newsletter, I think. We're going to get there. We're going to get there slowly. I, we'd love to continue to get people's ideas. I've got a whole list of things that people have asked us to cover. We're going to have to make sure we've got a, 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 a shorter list of guests that we have already lined up and, and more to come. So keep those ideas coming and we'll see you next week. Yeah, and and if you're listening, we saw there's some listeners from Russia, from India, from all over. Welcome right, they, to all your friends. We, we were told they might be bots, but we don't care. We'll take you all, whether you're a yeah. human, a robot. You know, I we're flattered that there are bots in Russia that are interested in our podcast. So, dos <laughs> vidanya. Okay, take care, John. Be well. Good to see you. Good Shabbos. We'll talk Good to you Shabbos. soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved.